Well, amen. Good to be here with you. My name is Brian. I lead the college ministry here. And before I get started, allow me to say I have heard your jokes. I have listened to the ridicule. I have absorbed all of the critique. And uh, so if you don't know, I, I, I taught about a year ago, and uh, we, we got out of here pretty early. Now, I maintain it was 7.15. I've heard stories, 7.05, no, 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 no. It was at least, at least, I said amen at 7.15. And so for the past year, I've heard all the jokes, and so I think tonight is the statement night. So we're going to be here till about 8.30. No, I'm just kidding. I'm joking. So. That's right. That's right. So uh, we, will, we will be here right, my goal is about 7.30. Okay, if I go a little bit over that, then great. If I go under that, then I'll just keep stalling until we get to 7.30. So anyway, uh, I want to make sure you get this handout. This is the handout for today. Uh, if you did not get this handout, there are two esteemed doctors in the back corner over there who would love to pass you one of these. And so if you don't have that, kind of just put, put your hand up and they'll go ahead and give you one of those. Um, so we're going to talk about baptism and the Lord's Supper today. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Two ordinances that, that do go together. And so hopefully we'll see some things that are helpful. Again, we're going through the book, 50 Core Truths by Greg Allison. Uh, Dr. Allison actually is a friend of mine. He was one of my professors in seminary, and so very glad to teach his, his content. So let's do this. Let me go ahead and pray again, and we'll dive right into baptism. Let's pray. Lord God, we're so grateful for our time together. We're grateful for your word, that we can study it, Lord. You've, you've told us to unfold your word. You've told us to rightly handle your word, and so we want to do just that tonight. We ask for grace in this endeavor as we think through these really important things, baptism and the Lord's Supper. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so baptism. Let's talk about baptism. I have a summary for you. I believe I've printed on your, your sheet. Let me give you the summary of baptism. It comes straight from the book uh, by Greg Allison. Here it is. Baptism is one of two ordinances of the church. Baptism is the initiatory rite or celebration of entering into the new covenant people of God. So baptism is wrapped up in the new covenant. This idea that Christ has come and by his life, by his death, by his resurrection from the dead, he gives us new life and as a symbol of our union, with him, he gives us baptism. We'll talk about a few metaphors a little bit later, but that is the summary for, for baptism. What I want to do here now is, um, actually I have a funny story. Um, my, one of my first times baptizing here at the church, I was, I think I was 23 years old, this is about five years ago, and uh, my first time ever baptizing. And the first one went pretty well. Uh, it was, it was a, a girl, I baptized her, took her out of the water, it was great, people, people clapped. Well, then the next guy, he was a little bit scared. He was also very tall, okay? And uh, we always tell people during the counseling time, hey, make sure you bend your knees, okay? Bend your knees so you either don't pass out or, you know, you, you know it's easy to get back down and, and, and up. Well, this student, I won't say his name, Tim, um, <laughs> 
about six foot two, uh, and he, he got a little bit nervous, and he locked up his legs. And so I go down to dip him, and then his back hits my knee. And so we can't go any further down. He's looking at me, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at him, and so I, all right, bring him back up. I bring him up, his whole head is dry, his hair is dry. And so I got ridiculed for that. They told me that the Presbyterian church would love to hire me because I sprinkle people with water. This church, man, tell you what. Uh, the next time I had baptized, I mean just a, a, a bear of a man. I mean, he was huge. He was probably 280 pounds, and I was a little bit concerned I won't be able to get him back up. And so again, I got him about halfway, and I said, if I go any further, I'm going down with him. And so just brought him back up again, head is, head is dry, hair is dry. That was, that was five years ago. So since then, I have a 100% track record of baptism. They have all gone completely under the water and back out of the water. So that's my little story about baptism. Okay. Now, I share that story because as Baptists, we believe that baptism is something that we do to celebrate someone's new life in Jesus and they should go completely under the water, okay? In fact, the word baptizo in Greek literally means to submerge. In fact, it's first person singular, I submerge. Uh, so much so that even the Dutch, they call John the Baptist literally John the Dunker. That's his name, because it's about it is to, to dunk. Uh, you can read first century Greek documents. They'll say that the boat baptizoed into the water, meaning the boat sunk. It went under the water. Oftentimes, in the New Testament, the word baptizo, baptism, will be coupled with the word translated as under. So, baptized under water. And so, the word baptizo, we would say, means to submerge. So, let me do this. Let me read you one passage. Uh, Matthew 3. I don't have it up there for you. I'm just going to read it, kind of set our time together. Matthew chapter 3, and this is the baptism of Jesus. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. Of course, if you're familiar with the context, you know that this is when Jesus goes to John the Baptist and says, you need to baptize me. And of course, John the Baptist is confused. He says, you ought to be the one who baptizes me. And yet we see that Jesus says, it's fitting for you to baptize me so that we can, I, I can fulfill all righteousness. And take a look at verse 16, what happens here. Verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized... Immediately he went up from the water. So he went down and he went up. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So this monumental moment in the life of Jesus and here, one of the reasons we tell people to get baptized is very simple. It's this. Jesus did it. We follow Jesus. Jesus, even Jesus was baptized. You know, I was at the, um, at the Nile River a few weeks ago. And uh, it was amazing just standing there and seeing that this, this river has so much history. At one point it turned to blood. And, and to think about there are so many baptisms that happened in this Nile River. It was, was pretty, pretty amazing. But we follow Jesus, 
everywhere, including to baptism. So let's do this. I want to give you a few affirmations uh, of baptism with some biblical support. The first one is that baptism uh, was ordained by Christ and practiced in the church from the beginning. Ordained by Christ and practiced in the church from, from the beginning. Take a look with me in Matthew 28. Matthew 28. I think we'll have that one on the, the screen. Let's look at how it was ordained by Jesus, that baptism is Jesus' idea. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18. Of course, it's the Great Commission. Matthew writes, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So notice, this was Jesus' idea. Jesus says the way you identify with me is via baptism. In fact, it's part of the Great Commission. The Great Commission is not just about evangelizing the nations. It is about that, but it's more than that. It is also about teaching them to be obedient, namely, first through baptism. Baptism is the initiatory rite into the body of believers. It was Jesus' idea. Jesus sets the terms by which we come to him. He says, believe in me by, by faith, right? Believe in me, and when you believe it, when you turn from your, your sins, take on baptism. We'll get to a little bit later that the, what, what the beautiful picture baptism is, that, that the mode, the reason why we believe in going completely under the water and back out of the water is because it reflects what Jesus did for us. His perfect life, his death, his resurrection. And Jesus says, if you want to identify with me, do that. So we always say, you know, raised to walk in newness of life. It's a picture of the resurrection. So Jesus has the terms on how we get that. It was ordained by Jesus. The second part of that phrase was that it was practiced in the church from the beginning. And so what I have here for you is a, uh, an excerpt from a document called the Didache, which literally means the teaching. It is a first century document. It's not the Bible. It's not scripture. It is like a, you can view it like a, like a commentary or like a little Christian, an early Christian handbook of, of, of Christian practice. What are some things Christians were doing in the first century? Again, not inspired, yet helpful for our purposes. What did they think about baptism? Let me read it to you. And concerning baptism, baptize this way. Having first said all these things, Baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, in living water. But if you have not living water, that means water that's running, running water is probably a better translation, baptized into other water. And if you cannot in cold and warm, but if you have not either, pour out water three times upon the head in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But before the baptism, let the baptizer fast, and the baptized, and whatever others can, but you shall order the baptized to fast one or two days before. Now, again, this is not scripture. This is just, these are things that they, they recommended. Yet, what we see is that baptism was practiced 
in the early church from the beginning. They have teachings on this. So again, it's not something that just rose up uh, by Hickory Grove standards. No, th this has been a, a commonplace Christian practice from the beginning. So you have the Didache, the first century teaching, but also you have the, uh, the patristic church fathers. All that means are the, the first guys, the, the early theologians, guys like Origen, Tertullian, and Augustine, those guys, they also taught about baptism. In fact, one of the first debates that Christians had to wrestle with was, guess what? Infant baptism. Right? Going for a long time. Now, originally, infant baptism was thought to erase what theologians call original sin. Okay? Maybe if we baptize the babies, they won't have this original sin on them. Of course, they found out that's not the case at all. But that's actually where infant baptism started. The idea of we can get rid of original sin. Literally to, to cleanse them from the filth of sin. So that is the patristic church follows. So all that shows baptism was practiced very, very early on. So it was practiced in the church and ordained by, by Christ. All right, let's, let's think through a few metaphors. A few metaphors for baptism. I, I want to give you three. So we'll talk about the various meanings of baptism. So some of these come from... Bobby Jameson wrote a book called Going Public about baptism. Some come from a book called Believer's Baptism by Stephen Wellam and Tom Schreiner. And so let's see if these will, will, will hit. Baptism is first like a ring. Like a ring. So I'm married. Married five years. And um, when we got married, you know, we went to a church, we said a few vows, and we exchanged rings. Now, there's nothing magical about the ring. So if I take this ring off, I'm still married. Yet, there's something powerful about the ring. It's still really, really important. It's symbolic. Baptism is kind of like a ring. It shows you're committed to a person. Right? This ring, maybe you're married as well, your ring shows the world. It's public. It's on your finger. It's public. It shows the world. You're committed to a person. It's like a baptism. When you get baptized publicly, you, you tell the world, I am committed to a person. I'm committed to Jesus. And so again, it's not a magical thing. It's, it's, it, there's no, no powers, right? It's, but it is symbolic and, and yet powerful. So baptism is like a ring. Think of it like a ring. You're committing to a person. That's a good metaphor. However, if you go too far on that metaphor, you might make Christianity the sort of individual, just me and my little Jesus moment kind of thing, which we know is not true. Christianity is about the church, about the collective body of believers. And so there's another analogy that I'd give for baptism. It's this. Baptism, think of it like a jersey. Think of it like a jersey. Maybe you play sports, or you played sports when you were growing up. You wear a jersey, what that means is you're on the team. And everyone else on your team wears your jersey. And if you wear that jersey, you are called to participate in the practices. You're called to participate in the game. You're, you're called to do your job. You are called to serve the greater good of the team. You are not just an individual. Baptism is kind of like a jersey. That's what I mean. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. I might have it on the screen. I'm not quite sure if I do.
Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 through 28. Notice the language of Paul in this text. And it's, it, it sounds like Jersey language. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. Paul writes, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Now watch this. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You have put on Christ. When? At baptism. You put on Christ. Verse 28. There's a statement about the unity of the church. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So, notice something. We have some elements here. We have some ingredients. We have baptism. We have putting on Christ. And we have this statement about the unity of the church. Meaning all three go together. And so baptism is like a jersey. When you get baptized, you say... I'm part of this team. Broadly, I'm part of Team Christian, but specifically, I'm part of Team Hickory Grove. And so I will work to, for the advancement of this church. I'll give sacrificially. I will worship, right? I will, I'll, I'll attend. I'll serve the body. Baptism is you putting on a jersey. It's not just a ring, not just you committing to a person. It's also you committing to a team, to a church. Baptism is like a jersey. So we have a ring, we have a jersey. Let me give you one more. This one's mine. Let me this one up. Let's see if it works. Baptism is like a sign. A sign. By that I mean you're driving down 45 and you see a wonderful sign. It's yellow. And it says Bojangles. <laughs> it's a great sign. What that sign does is it points beyond itself. You would never pull your car over and get out of your car and sit under that sign and wait for your Bowberry biscuit. You wouldn't do that. You know, if I, keep, if I keep going down this road, this next exit has what this sign was pointing to, was pointing to. Signs point to something. Well, what does baptism point to? Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Let's see, what is the whole point of baptism? Romans chapter 6. And I'll read to you verses 1 through 5. We'll take a look at what, what baptism points to. This will also speak to why we believe that baptism should be a full immersion, going completely under the water and completely back out of the water. What does baptism point to? Paul writes this in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Literally, may it never be. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Let me just pause for a moment. I want it to, to, to hit us. Paul just said, Should we keep sinning? And his response is, no, you got baptized. It's amazing. Baptism helps you in your fight against sin. By that I mean remembering what it's about. No, 
You can't live that way. You got baptized. You told the world you were a Christian. You told the world you're going to walk in newness of life. You told the world that. You told the church that. It says, verse 4, we were buried, therefore, with Christ by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So when I say that baptism is like a sign, what I'm saying is that baptism points to the gospel. It points to the one who lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death, and rose from the dead. And when you get baptized, you tell the world, I identify with him. I'm pointing to him. He lived for me. He died for me. He rose for me. I'm telling the world. Baptism is like a sign. It's like a ring. It's like a jersey. It's like a sign. That's, just, that's a few, few affirmations about baptism. I have a few more. Let's, just, let's do this. Let's, let's change gears for a second. Let's talk about disagreements about baptism. Of course, we know that as Baptists, um, Baptist Church, we believe in full immersion, right? We also believe in what's called believer's baptism, meaning you ought to be a Christian before you get baptized. However, uh, some don't believe that. And so I'll give you two disagreements. First one is called sprinkle or dunk. Should we sprinkle or should we dunk? I've made my case for dunk. Okay, I've made the case. It is identifying with the life of Jesus. The word means go under the water. Jesus did it, right? I've made my case. Um, but why is it that some denominations sprinkle? Well, I, um, I, I once time called uh, a professor at RTS, a friend of mine. Uh, he sent his son to our, our Christian school. I was asked, hey, he, why, why do Presbyterians sprinkle? I really, I don't know. And he said, well, you know, Brian, there are, there's, this, there's this temple language, particularly the book of Hebrews, of, of sprinkling of blood. And so we believe that just like blood was sprinkled in the Old Covenant, water can be sprinkled in the New Covenant. Okay, so, okay, well, you make your decision. Um, I think my case is stronger, uh, but that's why. It's an appeal to temple language in the Old Covenant. Sprinkling of blood, therefore sprinkling of water in the New, new Covenant. That's sprinkler dunk. Second question, second disagreement. This one I'll take a little more time on. Infant or believer? Infant or believer. Now, some of you may have been baptized when you were an infant. Some of you might have been baptized when you were three years old, four years old. So what I want to do is this. I want to at least give you the rationale for why people do that. And I'll tell you why I don't agree with it. Here's the rationale. Why, why do some churches, some denominations, baptize infants? Two reasons. Number one, they will appeal to what's called covenant continuity. Okay? Covenant continuity. What that means, the old covenant and the new covenant, they go together. They are, in one sense, attached to the hip. Okay? What you do in one sets precedent for what you do for the other. So in other words... If you have circumcision in the Old Covenant applied to infants, well then the sign of the covenant, the New Covenant, ought to also be applied to infants. That's the idea. They appeal to covenant continuity, and which we would agree that the Bible is 
uh, is, has continuity, right? We believe all the scripture is inspired by God. We believe that things in the Old Testament correspond to and point to things in the New Testament. However, when it comes to the covenants, we're going to make, was I'm going to make a distinction. And I'm going to say that we should actually aim for discontinuity. We should approach the covenants with an eye for discontinuity. These are different, what I'm saying. Now, why should we do that? My answer is because the Bible tells us to. And so what I mean. Turn with me to Jeremiah 31. So again, let's make sure we get the argument straight. The Old Covenant, instituted by God, had a covenant sign. That sign was circumcision. Abraham, we saw that in Genesis. Throughout the Old Testament, circumcision is the sign of the covenant. That is completely true. Sign of the covenant. Now move over to the New Covenant. Baptism is the sign of the New Covenant. That is also true. Completely true. So they're going to say, so apply it to infants. Right? It should, be, it should continue like that. But I'm saying we should err on the side of discontinuity. Look with me in Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now here's the most important phrase. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers. They're different. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers. On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So, what I'm going to argue is we should look at the covenant and ask, instead of asking, how are they similar? We've got to ask, how is it different? Because the covenant, the new covenant, is not like the old covenant. For example, in the old covenant, the sign, circumcision, pointed forwards. One day, one day, God will, will cut off your sin. He will circumcise your heart. One day it's coming. Conversion is coming. One day. Baptism points backwards. Look what Jesus did for you. In the Old Covenant, the people of God, you were born into it physically. You're sons of Abraham. You're physically born into the Old Covenant. In the New Covenant, you enter by faith. You don't enter because your parents are, are, are Christians. And so we see a lot of discontinuity happening. These two covenants are different. So they're going to appeal to covenant of continuity. We're going to appeal for discontinuity. That's why we're not going to baptize infants. Okay? Um, also, there is no explicit command in the New Testament to baptize infants. Now, they might say otherwise. They're going to also appeal to household baptism. Maybe you've heard that in Acts. The household baptisms. Well, let's look at those. Let's look at two passages in Acts and see what's going on with the whole he was baptized and his whole household. What's that, what's that about? Turn with me to Acts chapter 2, verse 37. A little bit of context. 
Peter has just preached the first Christian sermon. And so these, these people, they hear the word of God in their own language, and it says, I love this phrase, it says they were cut to the heart. And they said in verse 37, now when they heard this, they were, here it is, cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? It's a great place for someone to be. I've heard the word of God, I'm convicted of my sins, what do I do? Here's what he says, verse 38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children. There it is. And for all who are far off. And I'll stop reading there. They shouldn't, but they will. For your children. The promise is for your children. They'll appear there and say, well, notice the God be the Abrahamic promise, and it's for your kids. Be, be baptized for your, you know, your kids to be baptized too. I'm not quite sure that's what it's saying. The closest promise is if you repent and believe, you'll receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. That promise is for you, for your children. Anyone can believe the gospel and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Which means the promise is repent of your sins, you get forgiven. You get the Holy Spirit. That's for everybody. It's for you, for your kids, for your neighbors, it's for anyone the Lord calls to himself. I think that's what the promise is. The promise of if you repent, you'll be saved. I think that's what the promise is. Not necessarily to baptize your children. That's the first text. Next one is going to be Acts 16. It's the famous one, Acts chapter 16, with the Philippian jailer. So here we have this great, this great story. Of course, you have, you have Paul and Silas in jail. They're praying and singing hymns to God. A miracle happens, a jailbreak, they escape. And the jailer realizes, oh no, i got to explain this to my boss. This is not going to be good. But take a look at what happens right there in verse, I believe it is 33? 29, sorry, 29. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Verse 32. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once. Here it is. He and all his family. His whole family got baptized. Um, and so the argument will go, well, because he is the head of the house, because he got baptized, the children and the wife, they should also get baptized too. Again, I'm not quite sure that's what's, what's happening. Um, I don't think this text sets the case for either one. I think it's ambiguous. Um, it could be that. It could be they would get baptized. It could also be they heard the gospel. And they believed the gospel too, just like Daddy did. 
So I got baptized. So all it, is, all it is is, what do you assume when you come to the text? If you assume believers baptism, you're going to see it. Well, they, just, they obviously heard the gospel, and they believed it, so they got baptized. That's what it means. If you assume infant baptism, you're going to see that. Well, look, kids, babies got baptized. So I don't think this text will, 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 will help either, either position. You have to kind of assume your, your position either way. So those, are their, those are why they will appeal to infant baptism. Okay? Let's move on. Let's think through some errors. What are some errors to avoid? Errors to avoid when it comes to baptism. There's a lot. don't have time to go through all of them, but I want to pick out a few that I, I've seen. Here's the first error. Believing that baptism is effective. Let me explain what that means. I don't mean that it's a good thing. It is a good thing. But I mean it does more than you think it does. Um, to be effective means it saves me or it washes my sins away. It doesn't do that. This ring didn't make me married. It symbolized I'd, I was married. Let me read you the one verse or the one passage that is real tricky when it comes to this. It almost seems like it teaches baptism saves you. In fact, that phrase exists in the, in the text. So what I mean. 1 Peter chapter 3. Take a look at verse 18. This is one of the texts. Uh, John Piper, esteemed preacher, he, um, he selected two passages that he thought were the two most difficult New Testament passages. One is 1 Peter 3, verse 18 through 22, the other was Romans 3, verses 1 through 5, which is coming up, I think, in, in May. I think, I think the pastor has that one. Maybe, maybe he'll give it to Mike Powers. Who knows? Uh, in fact, Piper didn't even preach that sermon. He, he preached a sermon called, Why Did God Inspire Hard Text? <laughs> that was a sermon he preached. He got a first to Romans 3. Anyway, this is one of the hard passages in, in the Bible. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Here it is. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The one tricky phrase, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. I don't think he actually means if you get baptized, you'll get saved. In fact, that would run counter to the entire New Testament. I think he clarifies the terms. He says this. He says, not as a removal of dirt from the body. What exactly is baptism? As an appeal to God for a good conscience. He says that, that saves you. When you repent and believe, you will be saved. Baptism is part of your profession of faith. That's what he says. Baptism is an appeal to God. It is your union with Christ. You identifying with the life and the death 
and the resurrection of Jesus, that, that saves you. The gospel saves you. I don't think he means that actual baptism saves you. That's the first error. Second one is this. Dismissing baptism as unimportant. Maybe you say, okay, I get it. doesn't save you. So why do it? Right? Inconvenient. I just got my hair done. I don't want to get it wet. You know? I don't like being in front of people. Why? If, if, it's not, if it doesn't save me, why get baptized? Well, the reason is, one, Jesus did it. Number two, Jesus commands it. Right? That's a pretty big one. Number three, the entire New Testament commands it. And it is, it is akin to saying, so my wife's name is, is Becca. If I said, look, we're married. I know we're married. You know we're married. I don't got to wear this ring. How do you think I might fly in my house? That's not going to work, right? Because the symbol means something, right? It means something. And so just because it is not salvific doesn't mean it's unimportant. So dismissing baptism as unimportant. Let's move on. Let's talk, let's talk about performing the doctrine. How do we perform it? How do we apply this doctrine? How do we apply baptism? I'll say this. The, the church administers baptism. The church administers baptism and we do it two ways. One, we do it joyfully. We do it joyfully. Why? Because baptism is a celebration of new life in Christ. We love baptism, right? I'm, I'm meeting with a student. I met with a student a few weeks ago, and the, the student became a believer, I believe, in January. And to see just the, the joy he has and the excitement he has. One, one of our college students led him to, to faith in Christ. He had, he had heard the gospel many times. Uh, from this one student, but also he was involved in, in a community group, and he saw Christians interact with each other, and that just sort of convinced him. And so, Lord willing, he's going to get baptized. And he said, you know, I really, I can't wait to get baptized. I'm going to invite my mom, my dad, right? It's a celebration. We love to celebrate new life in Christ. So we administer baptism joyfully. But also, we administer baptism soberly. Soberly. Um, I just got back from a context um, North Africa, Middle East, where to, to get baptized as a Christian would significantly um, raise the chances that you will be physically harmed. And so, for, for many people in the persecuted church, we recognize that baptism is a clear abandonment of one's former life. Where I was was 98% Muslim. And the other 2% are Coptic, Coptic Christians, uh, which is about as close as Islam as you can, you can get without actually being Islam, but still being Christian. And so there are very, very few evangelicals. For someone to get baptized publicly could mean serious danger. And so we, we baptize soberly, knowing this means something. This means you are leaving your former life. In fact, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. No longer is it I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Right? The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we administer baptism joyfully, praise God, new life in Christ. But we also administer it soberly, knowing, hey, this is, this is you abandoning your former life and all that goes with it. Okay. Questions regarding baptism. 
Um, I have one or two we, we can go through. I'm curious. I don't want to open it up. What, what questions do you have about baptism? Maybe I can answer them. Maybe someone else can answer them. What questions do you have about baptism? Sure, yeah. So what he said was um, old, old covenant, circumcised the infant, uh, you're born into the old covenant. Okay? New covenant, you're born again. Right? You're born again. John 3, born again of the Spirit. And um, you are an infant in Christ, and then you are baptized. So in, in a way, you could say that there is some continuity there. Yeah, I would agree with that. Never heard of that, but I think that, that sounds about right. How about this? <clears throat> Should people get baptized more than once? Um, the New Testament does not answer that question head on. Um, I would lean towards no. That's what I would say. Uh, the same way, my wife and I got married once. There's no need to go through a ceremony again. It costs a lot of money. You know. But not, not just that, not just that, not just that. But um, if baptism is your initiatory right into the covenant community, once you're in, you're in. There's no need to go back and do it again. It's, it's the entrance right. And so I would lean towards, no, you should not get baptized more than once. Right, now, now that's where it gets another question. Should you get rebaptized if you think you were not a Christian the first time? Uh, I talked to Mike Powers about this. And um, well, you, you can forward all your emails and questions to Mike Powers. He would love. <laughs> Mike was telling me, man, I just have nothing to do all day. I wish more people would email me their questions. So just put them on Mike Powers. Mike Powers, P-O-W-E-R-S, at hgbc.org. Talk to Mike about it. And, you know, he had a good, good point. He said, you know, at, at that point, it, is, it was very clear, no, I wasn't a Christian. Then, no, you, you need to get baptized. If, if it's clear, you should get, you should get baptized. But if, you're, if there's sort of this, well, I'm not sure. I, I think I might have understood the gospel. I was young. I don't, I don't really know. At that point, it might be up to your own conscience to sort of ask the Lord, Lord, what should I do? You know? Yes. Yeah, and, and, you know, and, and that's what I'm talking about. It, it would be up to your own conscience of, was I a believer at the time? Um, if the answer is clearly no, then you should get baptized. If you're not quite sure, then I think the New Testament would, would say, um, we should only get baptized once. That's what I'd say. So, it's great, great questions. All right, let's move on. Yes, la last question. No, so the question is, does the scriptures explicitly state you cannot be a Christian unless you're baptized. No, it doesn't say that. Um, Mormons will say that. Uh, I believe Jehovah's Witnesses will say that. Christians won't, won't say that. Um, baptism is something that you ought to do. It is commanded by Jesus. Now, if someone says, I refuse to get baptized, I would then want to push in and say, are you saying you refuse to follow Jesus? If they refuse to follow Jesus, that's, that's a whole different issue altogether. But baptism doesn't, doesn't save you. So. All right, let's move on. Let's, uh, let's put baptism on the shelf and pick up the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. Well, 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 look at the time. <laughs> Statement night. No more jokes. <laughs> Halfway through. No, I'm just kidding. We'll go through this one pretty quickly. This is, this is half as much as I have for baptism. All right, Lord's Supper, Lord's Supper. Let me give you a summary. 
The Lord's Supper is one of two ordinances of the church. The Lord's Supper is the continuing rite or celebration of being in a new covenant relationship with God. Of course, the Lord's Supper, where we take the elements, it symbolizes the body and the blood of Jesus, right? Let's give a few major affirmations. Number one, it was ordained by Christ and practiced in the church. Ordained by Christ and practiced in the church. Meaning, just like baptism, the Lord's Supper is Jesus' idea. And, like many of his ideas, he models it for us. See, Jesus is great. He doesn't just command us. He, he does the things that he also commands us. He got baptized. Lord's Supper, he performed the Lord's Supper with his disciples. I'm sure what I mean. Matthew 26, take a look at verse 26. Verse 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread... And after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So before he dies says, look, I want you to do this to remember me. I'm going to give my body for you. I'm going to give my blood for you. In fact, in John's Gospel, we'll say, if you don't eat the flesh of the Son of Man, drink his blood, you have no life in you. So it's this powerful picture of the cross. Jesus will give us his body. He'll give us his blood. The Apostle Paul picked that up in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to go ahead and read to you. This might be the most famous outside of the Matthew text, the most famous text about the Lord's Supper. In fact, we, we read this whenever we do the Lord's Supper here at this church. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'll read to you this passage. Let's start in verse 23. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now he applies it. Verse 27. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Get this. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. How about that for church service? And so Paul says, hey, take this seriously. This is concerning the, the life and the death of Jesus. This, this points to Jesus dying on a cross for your sins. Take it seriously. And so as Christians, we take this seriously. We want to enter into the Lord's Supper soberly, meaning we want to be thinking about, do I have secret sin that I am holding on to? Do I have animosity towards a brother or a sister in Christ? If so, I have to, Matthew 5, 
Leave my gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then offer your gift. The Lord's Supper teaches us to repent of our sins. We, we do this discerning the body. Now, of course, there have been a few, um, a, a few confusing things about the Lord's Supper. I'll, I'll give you just one. It's called uh, transubstantiation. That is quite a word, isn't it? Tra- transubstantiation. That is the official position of the uh, Catholic Church in 1215. They proclaim that doctrine, meaning the bread and the wine, they change into the body and the blood of Jesus. They, they literally become the body and the blood of Jesus. Thomas Aquinas argued this. There's this famous story where he, it was Aquinas or Luther, I think it's Aquinas, where he was debating someone. And while the other person was arguing against transubstantiation, can't even say it, he was, he was etching something in wood. The whole time, the whole time. And when his opponent finished his argument, he flipped it around and it said, this is my body. And so it's a powerful thing. He's like, no, no, no. It literally becomes the body and the blood of Jesus. We don't believe that. We believe um, that Jesus is everywhere, right? God is everywhere. And so when we take the Lord's Supper, he's still with us. We don't believe in transubstantiation. It's one of the errors we, we believe. Okay, let's do this. Let's talk about one more major error. We'll do two more. Number one, believing the Lord's Supper is effective. Effective, meaning if people believe that as they take the Lord's Supper, they're drinking in grace from God, that is incorrect. Lord's Supper is not magical. It's grape juice, right? <laughs> Might give you reflux, but it won't, <laughs> won't forgive your sins, you know. Uh, it's it's not, not magical, so that, that's one error. Next error is saying, well, it's unimportant. Again, we would say Jesus commanded us to do this until he comes. So those are the errors. Last thing I'll say, how do we perform this doctrine? How do we perform this doctrine? The church administers the Lord's Supper. The church administers the Lord's Supper. We do this, we would believe, after baptism. right? Baptism is your initiatory right into the covenant community. And the Lord's Supper is a sort of reunion ceremony. We, we administer it as a proclamation of the gospel. Both of these, baptism and the Lord's Supper, proclaim the gospel. Baptism proclaims in his life, death, resurrection. The Lord's Supper proclaims it in his body and his blood. We're remembering that Jesus gave us his body and Jesus gave us his blood. Okay, well, I don't have any more time left. It is exactly 7.32. And so unfortunately, I can't take any questions, so I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, and we will be on our way. And so Father in heaven, we're so grateful for your word. We thank you for giving us these ordinances. We thank you for baptism, that it is a ring, it is a jersey, it is a sign. God, we thank you that you have baptized us into a covenant community of believers who love each other and love you and love the gospel. We thank you for the Lord's Supper, that you, you give us a tangible picture of your body and your blood. And so we pray that as we enter into the Lord's Supper, whenever we do it next, Lord, that we would do so discerning the body, that we would repent of sins, or we repent of animosity and hostility and envy or slander that we have towards another brother. 
Thank you for the grace you've given to us in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.